The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Okay, we are live. This one, um, you know... Sometimes life is just weird. It's amazing how five miles can be the difference between so much. Five miles is the difference between freedom and incarceration. Five miles is the difference between wealth and poverty. And in this particular tale, learn the value of five miles. I looked up this morning the distance between Atlantic City and Margate, it's actually only five miles. And that's kind of fascinating to me. It really is. And I'm going to tell a story from the uh, early to mid-90s. It's something I haven't really talked about before, this particular one. The thing about a secret is secrets can be valuable if they can be maintained. They could be deadly, you know. Sometimes we look back on a situation about what was the right thing to do, and time may teach us it was wrong, and sometimes what was wrong, time could teach us was right. But I'm just going to tell the story. I'm going to change some names, or not put people's names out there, but I did get an email a couple nights ago, 3 o'clock in the morning, And the email was from somebody from the past. And I was talking to them briefly about this. And I said, you know, I think i got to talk about this without putting your stuff out there. But it just brought back a lot of memories. Um, Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates and the Shiawassee Six. Let's go back to the early to mid-90s. Now, you know, you've known me constantly discuss the difference at Atlantic City High School. You know, it was like Fetner and Margate this way, Atlantic City Brigantine that way, which meant poor this way, wealth that way. And the school was, I believe, intentionally segregated, but not just upon race. It was based upon socioeconomics. When we say socioeconomics, it was kind of fascinating because... You know, you were in classes with people that came from the same economic background as you. Many times at AC High, your level of intellect was secondary. There was like almost a study done who would be in what class together. In my opinion, I know a lot of people challenge me on that. But, um, you know, as you're growing up in Atlantic City, and you are this poor white kid... You learn some survival techniques. You just do. And the jitney was always one form of survival, if you will. The jitney was dangerous, but the jitney was like this mini-bus. You used to go up and down Pacific Avenue, and it would stop at Jackson Avenue, which was the first street of Ventnor. And to me, the jitney was always symbolic that as it would stop on Jackson Avenue and Ventnor, it's going back around. It's kind of like there's this line in the sand. You know, you are Vetner and Margate, or you are Atlantic City and Brigantine. Atlantic City was fascinating because there were so few white kids left, but I was one of them. And growing up as a poor white kid, you made friends with a lot of minority kids. Um, you understood what diversity meant. You just kind of got the game. But with me, it was a little different. With mock trial and baseball and such, I kind of lived in two worlds. And when I say I lived in two worlds, there was my home life, which was poor white kid from Atlantic City. Then there was the outlier of the mock trial team. So I didn't like the wealthy kids at all, but they kind of used me for my abilities at mock trial, and I kind of used them to build a college resume, and there was an understanding about that. It just was. And usually these worlds do not collide, you know? There was separation. 
when I say separation, it was fascinating how that line of demarcation was so strong. You didn't see Margate kids come to Atlantic City unless they were trying to get liquor or drugs. You didn't see many Atlantic City kids go in the Margate unless it was for a purpose, like a school event or something like that. And I'm thinking back to this one young woman who did email me out of the blue. We've been Facebook friends for years, but uh, we'll protect the identity, obviously. She was a year behind me in school. And I learned a valuable lesson with her. We learned a valuable lesson together, and we, we've gone very different directions. But we used to be on that jitney together. What's up, Dave? We used to be on that jitney together, and hey, Jason Whitney. And we would just be talking about life. And she was interesting, because she was very smart. And sometimes she would be in classes with the Margate kids. Sometimes she wouldn't. But we were both kind of outliers on the fact that we were strong academically, I suppose. But, you know, she always dated much older guys within her race. And she wasn't white. Let's just start with that. Beautiful girl. But, and I guess back then it was so different. You know, when a pretty 16-year-old is dating a 24-year-old, it was kind of not frowned upon back then. It was wrong, but it happened all the time. And a lot of times the young girls in our neighborhood, and Dave Cruz, you could attest to this, when they were dating those older guys, they were trying to get out of a bad home life. A lot of the girls had um, came from abusive backgrounds. We didn't know that back then. It really wasn't talked about back then. So, this girl and I became close friends. And I'm sure I had a crush on her, but it wasn't really romantic because we're so different, you know? She will date these older guys. I'm just trying to get through. We had a kind of a connection because I'm mock trial. And she is an academic. Great writer. Fantastic writer. Um, her dream was actually to be a college professor, and she was big into Shakespeare and literature across the board. Now, understand something. Growing up next to Pitney Village, it was an interesting environment, to say the least. You learned survival at a very young age. You understood the neighborhood. And one of the places a lot of Margate kids, when they came into town is they would go to this bar called Choo Choo's. Choo Choo's was on um, Mississippi and Arctic Avenue, I believe. And it was known for serving underage kids. So when the Margate kids got their gifts on their 16th birthday, they'd come down to Choo Choo's because they weren't checking IDs and they would get drunk. There was this one kid from Margate. Um, and he, and the Margate kids were smart about this. Let me back up for a minute. They'd come together in like a group because they were scared of our neighborhood. But if there was a bunch of them, they felt somewhat safer that they could get their drink on or whatever. And one day, one night I should say, I'm going up Willow Avenue with my dogs, Scruffy and Odie. And it wasn't a smart move to walk up Willow Avenue, but... Like my Aunt Mary always taught me, if you hang from your head long enough, you'll learn how to do it. I'm a product of the environment. While I'm trying to get out of Willow Avenue, you also learn a little about surviving Willow Avenue. And at this point, like 16, 17 years old, I mean, I don't think tough would be an analogy for me, but certainly survival. And I knew where to walk with my dogs. I knew how to at least pretend to be tough. I knew how to throw a good right hook. I knew these things. And as I'm walking my dog, dogs I should say, uh, and they were tough dogs, I see this one Margate kid. And this Margate kid is walking out of choo-choo's. And it was weird because he wasn't with his group of Margate kids. He was with the girl from the Jitney. 
the girl that only dated older guys, the one that was a year behind me, the real pretty girl that wants to be the literature professor. And I see the two of them embrace, and they're really happy. And they see me. And it was really different, because one, when you would see a Margate person in Atlantic City, you're thinking, well, they're coming to get drunk, they're coming to buy drugs, or they're coming together as a group, but they're not coming alone. And these, these two are on a date. And he looked at me concerned. Now understand a bit, me and this guy don't like each other. We are not friends. I wouldn't say we're enemies, but we're not friends. I'm poor Italian from the hood. He is wealthy Jewish from Margate. Now he's on my turf with this really pretty girl outside of his race. And that was a big look back then. That was something that was unusual um, to see. Usually when there was interracial dating, it was the Margate girls dating um, black and Spanish guys from Atlantic City, but you didn't really see a Margate guy date a black or Hispanic girl from Atlantic City. It was a different look, and it was, you're kind of watching, like, huh, they looked happy. They really seemed at peace with each other. And I think about 16 or 17, a lot of the social mores you had, who's supposed to be dating who and stuff, it just went, hey, she's a beautiful girl. I like her. He wants to date her. Okay. I'm not hating the guy for it. I see her in the jitney a couple days later. And um, she comes up to me and we start talking. And she says to me, hey, you saw me and him on the jitney. Oh, you saw me and him at Choo Choo's. I'm like, yeah. So what? She goes, well, you can't tell anybody about that. You can never tell anybody about that. And I'm a little confused. And I'm like, number one, I'm not exactly a social butterfly at this point. Not that I'm talking about people, but when I see something, I just keep it in. It's none of my business what you're doing. But she was paranoid. You cannot tell anybody that me and him were together on Friday night. And she explains that his parents would be very upset it just wouldn't go over well. And she really cares about him and she doesn't want me to hurt this relationship. And I'm sitting here, I don't even have a car at this point. I get a car a little bit later, we'll talk about that, it's coming. But I'm like, what am I? I mean, I am basically a poor white kid from Atlantic City with no vehicle, the only Gentile in the mock trial team. What power do I really have to disturb your relationship in any way? Not that I would try to do that. She was paranoid about that. Um, a couple days later, I'm in the gym after hours, and he comes up to me, and he says, can I talk to you alone? Okay. So we're talking, and he's really nervous. You can see that this kid is, like, sweating. And I'm like, what's the problem? Because you can't tell anybody about me and her. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to share this piece of information, but why is this such a great secret? He goes, well, she talked to you, right? Yeah. And you and her are cool. Yeah, we're cool. She said she would tell you not to tell anybody. Okay. And you're not going to break that rule, right? You're not going to break her your word to her. No, dude, I'm not. But why is this such a big secret? I don't get it at this point. I don't think it's a big deal. He liked the pretty girl from the wrong side of tracks. Maybe they'll be something great. I don't know. He was paranoid and he's explaining stuff to me. And I'm like, okay, dude, listen, <clears throat> he's going off to a big time school and he wants to somehow be in this relationship with her. And he doesn't know what to do with his family, and he's a kid now, too. He's 17. Okay, listen. Not really my issue. It's nothing I have a right to even interfere on. I hope things work out for you, but I'm not going to break my word to her, and I'll give you my word, too. Now, from that point forward, we're not friends, but there's, like, this level of respect. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll protect you. And every Friday, 
and it was kind of it was like a sad moment for me because I mean I, I liked her but she liked older guys she liked him and you're pretty you're poor and you're in the ghetto and you're walking your dogs on Friday night you would see these two have their little secret and they'd be happy I'm not going to wreck that secret but you're also wondering you know is my time ever going to come I don't get this and why am I being empowered with all this it was confusing but I was happy for her I really was I didn't like him but she deserved to be happy and I think she saw something in him and they saw something in each other and when these two are walking together in this bad part of Atlantic City I'm gonna tell you they had they were like bliss man they were just happy together and uh, things would change it was weird she calls my house one night and this is somebody who we didn't talk on the phone much we had each other's numbers this is before texting and stuff like that but she calls me and she's crying her eyes out can I meet you near your house we only live a few blocks away from each other at the time I'm like yeah sure what's up and she tells me she's pregnant So, I said, okay, let me ask you this. I know you were dating that older guy. The older guy was a drug dealer, by the way. I know you were dating Margate Kid. She goes, it has to be Margate Kid's child. She tell him about it. It's like, no. You have to tell him about it. And she says to me, if I tell him about it, I'm going to lose him. What do I do, B? Now, understand, I'm not exactly a man of the world at this point. I'm just trying to survive my own shit, get my family out of the hood, whatever. But I did say to her, at some point, the secret's going to come out, right? Either you have the child, give it up for adoption, you guys start a life together or you have an abortion I don't know what else to tell you and I'm sort of not gonna make that decision for you and it's funny with the term abortion I always felt this when it comes to the concept of abortion I know it's a big topic right now as a man as somebody who cannot bear a child I never felt it was my decision on whether a woman should have a right to choose or not it's not my business I can't I can't own that situation. I just can't. Um, so I can't advise her either. It wasn't my place to advise her. She tells him about it. Now, I've never been a fan of abortion for birth control. I just don't think that's cool. But again, not my situations. I can't judge anybody on that. He wants her to have an abortion. And he's telling her, look, I love you. We'll work this out. But I need you to abort this child. Here's the thing about her. She came from a really screwed up family. There was definitely physical abuse. I believe from some of our conversations there was sexual abuse. I believe she was dating the older guy as a way to escape her own familial dysfunction. She's in love with this guy from Margate. Now she's pregnant. She's a year behind us. He's going off to college. I mean, this kid had a lot of shit on her shoulders, you know? And she's empowering me to try to help her navigate this. And what the hell do I know at 17? I am literally a 17-year-old poor white kid in the hood who is a virgin who's about to go to community college to try to attempt to play baseball and do this law thing. I don't know shit about life at this point. I know how to survive walking home in a bad neighborhood. I know how to work extra hours at bullshit jobs to get my family some money, but I don't know the world. The whole world is like in front of me. I don't know what to do. And here's this girl who I really am fond of, who's looking to me to help fix these situations. I'm the only one that she could talk to. I go talk to him. And he's really concerned. And the first thing he goes is says is, well, the kid's not mine. Mm. I don't know about that. Um, you Margate boys really aren't big in the condoms. And I gotta think you had sex with her unprotected and got her pregnant. 
Um, the other guy she was with, I don't think he was going. He was the father just because he had other things going on. And I don't think a child was on his game frame. And while this other older guy who was involved in the game, if you would, was not as smart on paper as the Margate kid, he was certainly more worldly. And I don't believe if she was having sex with both of them simultaneously, I don't think the drug dealer was the father. I got to think it's you. And again, I hear you Margate guys in the locker room. Condoms aren't your thing. It feels better. It feels different. Well, now you got this girl pregnant. So I believe you're the father. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what she tells me. What are you going to do? And he gets real arrogant. Um, he says, you're going to use this leverage to try to get with her. Now, that was not what I was trying to do. This poor kid's pregnant. She's in love with this kid. She don't know what to do. And despite the dysfunction of her background, she's also a strong Catholic. So abortion is something she's not going to be comfortable with. I asked him, what do you think the right thing to do is here? Because my family will never accept it. Okay, well, do you want to maybe help her out financially? You guys could certainly afford that. You have to figure this out. Maybe she has a child put up for adoption. I don't know. But there's too many young kids in the ghetto of Atlantic City in the 90s that are being born out of wedlock and not having two parental figures around. I hate to see this child become a victim of circumstance. Especially when your family can afford to help her out. He tells me he will help her. He'll figure it out. Great. Uh, then he just stopped returning her calls. And he just blew her off. And she comes to my house one day. Now, understand, I just bought a 1983 Camaro. 500 bucks, all the money in the world. This Camaro would break down all the time. But now I had a car. Having a car in Ducktown was a big thing. This old beat up Camaro was like a way to escape a little more. She comes to my house crying. What am I gonna do? So we'll figure it out. You know, if you got to go to an abortion clinic, I guess I could drive you there. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Miss Gandia gets involved. Now, Miss Gandia, remember, Miss Gandia is my journalism teacher. She's my third mother. She's a mentor. She's everything to me. And Miss Gandia wants me to stay away from this situation. Miss Gandia said to me, Amadeo, you got the world going for you once you get through all this. You don't need this girl's drama. You don't need this your life and she told us to the girl miss gandia calls my aunt <clears throat> my aunt's upset i'm even involved here the only connection i really have with this young woman was we used to talk about academics on the jitney together but i am empowered in this situation at 17 years old with my 1983 camaro in the hood here we are so she tells me one day she just wants to go to his house and she knows she goes to his house he's going to make things right he'll realize how much he loves her and she asked me for a ride probably wasn't a smart move for me to drive her there to the suburbs of margate um it just really wasn't you know my, i mean i i prefer driving her there as opposed to an abortion clinic Okay, get in the car, let's go. Now, as we're driving in the car, she has these Polaroid pictures of her and him. And that was the thing back in the day. They would stop a Polaroid like you do a selfie today. And she's crying and she's clinging to these pictures. And I don't know how to really comfort her at this point. And I'm going to this place in Margate. And this kid's... Family. I won't mention what they do for a living because people might put two and two together, but they were wealthy, well-to-do, and empowered in South Jersey. And we drive up, and she gets out of the car, and I'm like, patting her on the back, this will be okay, let's walk up to the house together. And um, 
We go into the house. Mom answers the door. How you doing? I'm Bill Amadeo. This is my friend. We need to talk to your son and you, for that matter. Well, Mom starts saying, okay. There's a 1983 Camaro pulling up to this mansion in Margate. Me, this Spanish girl, she goes, I'm going to call the cops right now. Mm, I don't know if you should be the one calling the cops. You might want to call a lawyer, I say to her. And I'm really, I'm kind of agitated right now because they're treating her like dirt. I'm also being thrown to the mix. Father comes out. Now, somehow I'm in the middle and I'm advocating, like I'm her lawyer now, 17 years old. I said, look, you guys need to understand the situation. She's pregnant. She's in love with your son. Your son's the father. You guys need to fix this. This is not my responsibility. I don't know what to do. Like, she had all these things ready to say, and then she couldn't say it when we're there, so now I'm speaking for her. Call the son down, and the son looks her right in the eye in front of his parents. I don't know who she is. They're both lying. She's bawling now. Now, here's this girl. She's pregnant. She's bawling. How could he say this? The family's threatening us to kick us out. And I'm just sitting there like, huh. Well, I didn't sign up for this, but f it, I'm here. And I look at the father in the eyes. I said, sir, do you really believe she made this story up? She wants my son's money. She wants this. She wants that. My son wouldn't be with somebody like that. Like that? <laughs> I'm pissed right now. I grab her purse. I pull out the Polaroids. Here's my exhibits now. And what will be foreshadowing for criminal law. What are these? These are pictures of your son and her happy and in love and holding each other. Now, you don't need to be a Mensa member to figure out from these pictures they were having sex together. He is the father of this child. So here's what we can do. And I'm like, I'm just in the zone right now. We could go to the press. I know you're involved in political elections. We could play that. That he was hooking up with some girl from the hood behind mommy and daddy's back. Or you could give her some kind of support right now. What do you want to do? You have it your way. Now, here was the weird thing. Even though I'm a nobody, I was in the press sometimes in Atlantic City for like mock trial tournaments and stuff. And I knew a few journalists. And Miss Gandhi was very well connected with the press industry. So we're playing the press card. This is not helping this girl at all, but I don't know what else to do. I'm 17 years old. Um, and somehow I'm in this mix. <sighs> Long story short, as short as it could be, uh, they gave her some money. And she kept the child. And she dropped out of school before graduating. And she ended up with not the older guy she was with, but somebody similar to that. And he kind of raised the child. And um, the Margate kid went off to college, and he's successful today. And he's never contributed anything other than the money his father provided that day. And her and I lost track of each other, obviously. Um, it's weird. You know, certain bonds from Atlantic City, you lose track of each other. And people talk about where you came from and this and that. I mean, there's a lot of that goes into this, right? There's a lot of stuff that things that are repressed or things that are this or things that are that. I don't know what to say to certain people from certain situations. When she reached out to me, the only thing I could say is, how are you doing? And when she explained, we, she went on this whole, wrote this whole novel. And, um, I feel bad for her. You know, I really do feel bad, but she's had a rough life. And, you know, it was odd because He's a 17-year-old kid. He's not ready to be a father. I get that. 
I do. I really do. But this kid, this little girl, who certainly physically at her age, pretty child who was capable of having sex, was not capable of being a mother, and this young boy with his whole future in front of him, he wasn't ready for fatherhood, obviously. And, um, I don't know what the right thing to do there, but I felt that his family should have played a role in her life, should have helped that child financially. I don't know if they could have helped emotionally. Worlds were colliding right there, you know. And I look back at those Polaroid pictures, and I'm thinking, man, these kids were happy. But happy to an extent. Even though they're happy. Even though they're kind of together in the moment. He still has his world. She has her world. And those worlds, just those five miles, I tell you, they just don't seem to collide appropriately. She's told me about her life. And the one thing that she mentioned, which really kind of bothered me, was that she still loves that kid from Margate. Here we are at 45, and she's back. She's 16 and still caught in that moment, you know? And I asked her if you reached out to him at all, if you ever talked to him, and she's tried. And he just... Mommy and Daddy gave her some money. Not enough money, by the way. And bought his way out of it. And this individual, while he has a level of success, he's always been the type where mommy and daddy would just cover him. Here's the thing. At some point in life, whether we're rich, we're poor, suburbs, the hood, whatever, at some point in our life, there's going to be nobody to protect you. You have to be a man or a woman on your own. You have to step up and face whatever the cards are and just fight. And he really hasn't had to do that but a lot of things have happened with karma on him and it's not my place to put his stuff out there or her stuff out there I never mentioned her names she's been through hell and she still loves you and she looks back at those times in god ducktown in 1993 and 1994 as the happiest of her life and she's gone from one bad relationship to another, and I think you were the only thing that ever made her happy. And if you really are a man, if you really are what your tweets say you are, you should reach out to her. You should give her money. You should make sure that your child, who's been in and out of jail without you being around, is taken care of. I don't view you as a man. I view you as a coward. And while I won't put your shit out there, it's you have to deal with every day. And just know, she's out there, she raised your child, she kept your f***ing secrets, and you and your family went on to your elitist style in South Jersey while she was looking to escape a screwed up background. And the only bit of real happiness she ever had was hanging with you at Choo Choo's bar taking Polaroids and she bared your child and kept your secret. You're a disgrace. To the young woman, you're a tough girl. And I really admire you held it down for him if you would, but you deserve a hell of a lot more than you got. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. It is Saturday. It's week one of college football. I've been working all day, guys, so a couple things hit me today. What are we talking about from the sandbox to the clicks? Talked about from the sandbox to the clicks, and this is a um, it's like a biography of somebody from the past. It's an interesting one. 
have to get some content done. Just had to take a break from Krim Law for a minute. Been going at it all day and all night. Do you guys see what Mickey Mantle wrote? There's a great link on some of these old baseball pages today. Mickey Mantle wrote what his most memorable moment was at Yankee Stadium. He wrote this on December 14, 1972. And I gotta tell you, Mickey Mantle, one of the greatest players of all time. Maybe the greatest player of all time if he stayed healthy. What he wrote as his greatest moment at Yankee Stadium was not what you would expect. I thought it was going to be about a World Series win. It wasn't. Check that out. Mickey Mantle's most memorable moment at Yankee Stadium, December 14th, 1972. I'm not going to get into what he said, but um, you'll enjoy it. See that photobomb of the whale at the wedding? That was funny. People got confused over that today. Anyway, let's talk about from the sandbox to the clicks. And we're growing up. We're kids, right? And we're all in the sandbox hanging out. Before we start deciding who's cool and who's not, and who is important based on social economics or whose parents are important, there's a time in life when we're all just cool with each other, right? Things change. There is one story I'm going to tell today. I'm not going to mention the individual's name. But I'm going to just give a synopsis of how life can be altered. How things can change. How shit can just happen. I was a kid, you know, and I grew up in Ducktown. Ducktown in Atlantic City in the 80s and 90s was no joke. Definitely one of the most dangerous areas because it was next to Pitney Village. So, while we lived there at like age five, age six, it was still a decent neighborhood. Like, really took off in like third, fourth grade. The neighborhood changed. And it changed in a very bad way. But there was a girl I was friends with as a child. We lived next to each other. Our families knew each other. Guess she was my first crush. I don't know. But, you know, you're a kid and you're playing in the sandlot and all that stuff. And, you know, and I guess it was a relatively poor neighborhood, but you don't really notice that at five, six years old. She was uh, somebody I was cool with. And right before the neighborhood changed, before it went to she would, her family move to Margate. Margate, as many of you know that watch this, that was wealthy. Atlantic City was poor. So her family didn't have a ton of money. Um, but, you know, certainly enough to get out of what was going to be the ghetto. And we lost track of each other. Now, we would go to each other's birthday parties and stuff like that, but it was interesting growing up in Atlantic City versus growing up in Margate. Um, grammar school years were rough. I was sick with my stomach, almost died a few times. Brutal case of dyslexia. You guys heard things about Father Sullivan. And I guess she was just pretty girl living the Margate lifestyle. We remained in touch. We were friends. Uh, so I thought. So grammar school was interesting. And her first year of high school, she went to a different high school. But sophomore year, she came to my high school. And I was pretty excited. Like, wow, my old childhood friend. Because let me tell you, high school was brutal, right? Because at this point, the old neighborhood was a pure ghetto. It was survival mode. And let me tell you something. If you didn't live in that part of Atlantic City in the 90s, you really need to shut up about it. So I've heard people say, oh, Atlantic City was fine. Yes, it was fine if you were going to a casino and staying towards Ventnor and Margate. It was not fine when you went home on the Jitney. So unless you walked a mile in those shoes, Omar Martin, John Newsom, Jose Rivera, Dave Cruz, they can comment on that. People from the suburbs cannot comment on it. 
and it was rough because, you know, Grandpa's dying my sophomore year. You're poor. You're white, which made you the minority in Ducktown at that time. And she transferred in. I'm excited. You know, I am so excited because my childhood friend is here now. And I'm going to have this connection. And I saw her first day sophomore year and I ran up there and said, oh my god, how you been? And she looked at me. Like this stare. Now here's what I didn't get at that point. At this point of the game, she didn't want to remember the neighborhood we came from. She pretended to have money, her family didn't, but enough to have an apartment in Margate. And I'm, you know, I am who I am. And it was one thing to get kind of dissed, right? Because now she could afford better clothing, and she had her little clips, and smoking her weed, and doing her drinking on Friday. I'm just trying to survive. And like I said, it was one thing to just get dissed. But it was another thing to do what she did. There were friends of hers that I liked and I was talking to, and she would go out of her way to destroy those potential relationships. It wasn't enough to forget where you came from. It was now enough to keep your social economic status up. Because there was a fear that if I broke into that inner circle of hers, her world would kind of fall apart. Because now they would know, oh, wait a minute. You were living in the ghetto too at one point. And while she was being a real bitch, I always kept her secret. It's like an unwritten code, I guess. High school was brutal. I hated high school. High school was probably the time of her life. And it was interesting how there was this coldness about this girl. Like, all the the childhood memories, being in kindergarten, playing in the sandbox, and going to each other's parties, her family was not friends with my family anymore. In fact, we were looked down upon. And uh, when I broke out with mock trial junior year, she kind of, she talked a lot of shit about me. She was just a cruel person. And she went off to a big school, and I was going to community college. And it was funny. It was, it was hurtful at the time. Because, you know, back then, you're just looking for a friend, right? You're looking for a friend. You're looking for a connection. And not only did she not connect, I mean, she just tread on me. It was a lot for a 15-year-old kid going through enough shit already to deal with. And, um, she was it in high school, and I was sh She went off to her big-time college, and I went to local college, and I was working as a bar porter at Tropicana. College and higher education sometimes has a way of evening some things out. Um, I kind of took off in college. Things started happening for me. You know, I'm bartending in the casino, I'm working 40 hours, I'm taking 16 credits. And now all the high school bullshit kind of just disappeared. She didn't make it through her college. She ended up back at the community college I started at, which was fascinating. We would see each other. And now there was this quest. There was this quest to be friends on her end. And there's this saying, you know, you gotta watch out. When you're climbing up a ladder, be careful the people you see on the way up, because you're gonna see those same people on the way down. And guys, I don't give a shit what anybody says. In this life, and I've been there, many of you have been there, and some of you have been there and not realize it. We're on this roller coaster, right? We have these moments of magic, these moments of greatness. Maybe you win that murder case, or you make that big hit, or whatever it is. You become this person of importance, this public figure, and then just like that, it could be gone. And high school, to me, reminded me so much of that. That's one thing I hate about Facebook. It gives people who lived for the high school experience a chance to maintain that and never have growth. I don't take high school happiness away from anybody, but it certainly wasn't something I experienced. College changed a lot of things. 
And now I'm kind of like in a different clique, and she's not. And she's trying to cling on. I was nice to her, but it's hard to forget stuff. Eventually, one day, she was really into me after college. I had no interest. So it's hard to let that shit go. Um, then I couldn't get into law school for a while. And the jokes came back. Now, she wasn't doing anything with her life that was spectacular. But it took me several years to get into law school. For those of you who don't know, the LSAT kicked my ass. I had a bad case of dyslexia. I'm supporting Aunt Aaron Mom. I'm working full-time in a casino. I'm doing stuff with the union. And I did not go right to law school from college. I had a tough journey. And it seemed like with my failures, she really enjoyed that. I would get weird DMs on Facebook. We're not friends, by the way, so you have to check that chat area. Say how I'm never going to make it. I'm a nobody, this and that. And it was confusing. Because here's what I remember. Remember like five years old. This being like my go-to at five. And it's weird how your go-to at five could be somebody insignificant at 35. But that's the way life goes sometimes, right? But at five years old, that was my go-to. At 15... I was a joke. At 25, there was confusion. 35 things take off today. At 45, like, okay, well, look at the scoreboard, lady. But it was funny. When I finally got into law school, when things started to take off for me, there was, like, this anger and confusion. And she always played the central point. So much of me was like, what was your deal? Why were you such a bitch for no reason? We could have just been cool. We could have just been friends. And today, our lives are extremely different. What sucks about life and revenge, what really sucks is this. People that try to put you down, when you get to the place when you can really just stick it up their ass and laugh in their face, not even worth your energy. You don't even think about them. And the only reason I even thought about this individual today, as I was in the gym at the ass crack of dawn before work, it was because somebody emailed me about her on Facebook. And their exact words were, so-and-so saw an article about you and wanted to see how you were doing. If they sent you a friend request, how would you react to that? Think about that now. If this individual sent me a friend request, how would I react to that? And I just responded with an LOL. And they said, what's that mean? And this person, the person who's advocating for this Facebook friendship, which, by the way, do Facebook friendships really mean anything? I mean, I like to think that if you're friends with somebody, it's more than just Facebook, but okay. This person is like Switzerland, right? Nice person. But they want everybody to be friends. They think, like, 1994 was this great time and we should all be reunited. Okay, whatever, dude. And I said to the individual, look, I don't wish her any ill will. I hope things work out for her. But I have no desire to be friends or communicate. Because what this will become is this. She'll be drunk telling you all these things. Then she'll tell you about yourself. Then she'll need free legal advice. If they weren't your friend at 15, you shouldn't let them in your world at 45. That's all I'm saying. And it was fascinating how at five years old, we're just happy kids playing. We don't realize we're poor. We don't realize that neighborhood's going to be dangerous in a few years. All we realize is, hey, we're having a good time. It's bliss. It's happiness. At 15, the cliques of high school evolve. At 25, you're a young adult. You start seeing shit differently. 35, maybe you become established. When you finally get to that place in the life where you just tell anybody to go to hell, you can laugh about it. When you don't need somebody's financial support, and you don't need their emotional support, you don't need them, right? When that happens, you relive everything for a minute. And all I can say is this. Those moments in the sandbox, I mean this for anybody watching, 
anybody in general. Those moments in the sandbox, I wish we could just capture them and control them and live like that, but we can't. Should never be arrogant just to be arrogant. Like, I wish somebody like this was a prosecutor. I could beat them in court. But I look at where I am, I look at where they are, and it's just like, there's really no extracting revenge at this point. And there's not a lot of effort to think about them till the name comes up. When that name comes up, and we all got that person from the past, we all got that person who we enjoyed our time and it was peaceful in the sandbox, and it became a complete asshole at the lunch table. When that person comes back into the life, or tries to come back into life, the best thing you can do, ignore. The emotional cease and desist is more powerful than giving someone the middle finger. That's all I got today. Hope Boise State wins tonight. Have a good weekend, guys. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.